0: Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com.
1: I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more.
0: to Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Arway of Eat Your Words, and that is what you're listening to today. Um, I'm really excited today because we are welcoming back to the program a longtime trailblazing food critic, and he's just come out with a new book, New York in a Dozen Dishes. It's Robert Sitsuma here in the studio.
1: Hey, Kathy. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for coming again. Um, it's very generous of you, and uh, this book has been such a long project of yours. Um, of course, maybe the actual writing wasn't that long, but doing all this research is a, it seems like a culmination of your 20-plus years as a food critic in, in New York City.
1: It, it is, and one of the most fun things about writing the book was figuring out which dishes to include. Yeah. Um, I had a real quandary with some things you know i wanted i didn 't want everything to be familiar. I wanted to have a few weird things in there
0: that 's what I was going to actually talk about next because um it 's you know the concept is New York in a dozen iconic dishes, and you know we all know hot pastrami we all know good pizza black and white cookies these are some things that I think um if you were to ask many food critics about you know this topic, uh, they they would say. But then you have things like scrambled brains and cuy, which is Ecuadorian for guinea pig. Right. And it's um it's I gotta say it's very you. It's very <laughs> thank you uh, off the beaten path.
1: I look a little, a like, little like a guinea pig. <laughs> Or at least a pig, I'm not sure what
0: Scrambled brains,
1: just (laughs) kidding. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yes, scrambled brains, exactly right. Yes, that's perfect.
0: No, it just, it it perfectly sums up, you know, what um, somebody... Uh, who, who has the depth of uh, or the range of appreciation for food um, such as yourself? do You seem to be like two steps ahead of, of everyone else in food. Um, who knows? Maybe Scrambled Brains is going to be like the next pizza in well, New York. This has now. always
1: been a nation of immigrants. And so if you keep your eye on the immigrant community, especially the ones that have arrived most recently... They're introducing food that will be seen in the mainstream, you know, 20, yeah. 30 years later. Pho. And uh, if you can just, yeah, pho is, uh, you know, a Vietnamese soup. It's absolutely fantastic, associated with Hanoi. And just now, Vietnamese food is beginning to penetrate various yeah. neighborhoods that were not traditionally Vietnamese.
0: So, yeah, it's it's seen in, like, shopping malls and all over.
1: Oh, all over Texas, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the Vietnamese started out in New Orleans and in Houston, and they just kept moving north. And now Dallas and Austin mm-hmm. have a plethora of really good Vietnamese places. I mean, that's the the beauty of the immigrants making the food here soon after they arrived, is that it. there's a freshness to it, a vitality. Mm. You know, they're really trying to make it for nostalgic purposes. So, you know, they don't hold back the spices. They don't simplify it. They don't take cost-cutting measures even if the ingredients are expensive, which they must be in I mean, you have all those different kinds of beef in there. Beef (laughs) is not cheap. Yeah. Including brisket, that most, now most expensive of meats, once incredibly cheap.
0: Well, let's talk, because let's talk about um, some of the the interesting regional dishes that have seemed to cross pollinate in New York, like fried chicken and the barbecue brisket, which you include in this book, which aren't necessarily an ethnic uh, enclave, but as. you know, an influence from America.
1: Well, yeah, everything is. I think if you go back far enough, like the original uh, barbecue brisket started out with German shopkeepers in Central Texas.
0: Damn it, USA invented that. Just
1: <laughs> well, uh. we did. In that they were part of us by the time they invented it. But just don't uh, say that in Texas. <laughs> no, you can say it in Texas. Uh, the um, and I go to Texas all the time to eat barbecue just to keep in touch. But the reason that barbecue brisket is in the book is that. For the first time in New York over the last decade, we've gotten right. really high-quality barbecues. I mean, it took a long time, and there were a lot of stumbling blocks. Right. But after a while, kind of crazy would-be pitmasters started going down to Texas and learning how to do it.
0: And what is up with that? Like, um, these Yankees are, are not really known for the Southern fare, like fried chicken. And uh, it's something that, that the Southern uh, folks take a lot of pride in. Um, why did this happen? I mean, don't we have a lot of ethnic food and other food to explore? I mean, f-
1: brisket and... Oh, we, we do. But um, the thing about fried chicken and brisket and stuff like that is that they're very homey homely, I should say, because I hate mm. the word homey. They're uh, homely sorts of treats. They're uh, comfort food. They're nostalgic. Yeah. They're, that's um, true. So those had to be remade in order to kind of charge more money for them. So brooklyn fried chicken appeared which was uh promulgated by pies and thighs and places like yes. that and the chicken biscuit became popular here there's a
0: whole and, brooklyn and, southern thing
1: and the, it's a southern thing but it's a weird limited southern thing because the african-american southern people that came up here in the 1920s uh they had this style of making fried chicken they were mainly from the carolinas and from georgia and their style just involved dredging the bird in flour and then frying it very carefully in skillets to keep the skin intact. And it was the skin that did all the crunch work. Whereas the Brooklyn hipster cooks, they insist Batter. upon this brining and battering yeah. and brining. I mean, this is why I don't like pies and thighs as well as Mitchell's in Prospect Heights, mm-hmm. for example. In that prize and thighs, pies and thighs, birds, and the birds at a lot of these nouveau places... Um, they have this plump breast that's absorbed all of this marinade. And some, sometimes it, they use execrable marinades like uh, sweet tea and stuff like that. What? And, and making it like a marshmallow. I mean, I don't like my chicken to be fork tender. I like it to have a little sinew and uh, and allow you to exercise yeah. your chompers.
0: I know what you mean. I think that's usually called country fried when they do all that kind of... Really? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I I could easily see that. And and what was broasted chicken? That was like popular 15 or 20 years (laughs) ago. I never figured out what broasting was.
0: Well, these things are quite faddish. Um, I wonder what if you could write this book and start to write it now, would you include anything that's on the rise that you see um, in New York? Oh, my
1: God. What a good question. Uh, I would think I would include uh, maybe Venezuelan food because that's a big thing. I mean, we have within a few blocks of where we are right now, at least three Bushwick. Venezuelan uh, restaurants,
0: What is one what of is which that
1: specializes in? in Venezuelan hot dogs. Ooh.
0: Yeah. Does it have potato chips? Like it a has potato Colombian? chips. It has
1: guacamole. It Ooh. has uh, sometimes an egg on there, sometimes these three or four different kinds of relish that they use, some of them kind of mustard or papaya-based. Now,
0: I can see that taking off in a big way as a fact I would year. think so,
1: too, because we're in an age when the glamorization of plebeian foodstuffs is occurring. In other words, restaurateurs desperate to, to make enough money to meet their rent mm-hmm. are taking mm-hmm. things that used to be cheap Cheap as hell, Mm -hmm. and they're like adding several dollars to the price by means of, you know, goosing them up a little bit. So Mm -hmm. a hot dog that you might buy from the corner floater place. You know, might be $1.99 now, but you put a few potato chips and a little dab of guacamole on top, and suddenly it's 5.99. dollars yeah. I mean, this is the bark phenomenon.
0: Yes, that's right. And who doesn't love a hot dog, especially in the summer? It's and they've so done it they did
1: first with a hamburger, but they've done it with pizza. I mean, look where we're sitting right now the place where they taught people to pay 13, 14 bucks for a tiny little pizza, whereas yeah. pizza used to be something that you, you know, got a whole giant pie that would feed two or three people for $8 or $10.
0: And you start out the book talking about pizza and the genesis of this. I I learned so much in it because pizza is one of the most, I think, uh, (laughs) debate-worthy foods in the country. It sparks passion, and uh, uh, a lot of people um, will argue for the best pizza, but also where it came from. And you really describe where it
1: came from. Uh, That was the most fun of the book was researching that thing and developing theories about how it arose. Because to me, pizza is the quintessential American product food-wise. It's the one thing that was really invented here out of whole cloth. It may have been inspired by the pizzas of Naples, but I went to Naples and man, the pizza culture there is completely different and the pizzas taste completely different. For example, When the Mayor was eating a uh, pizza with, with a, a knife fork. and fork, and everybody was making fun of him, I mean that's the real Italian way to eat Italian pizza uh-huh. because you couldn't you couldn't even pick up a slice there to begin with. they don't cut the pizza, which is tiny into slices mm-hmm. they uh they give you a knife and fork, and the middle of the pizza is so damp that if you were able to cut slices and try to pick it up, it would just like go all over your shirt right and so.
0: he mentioned that um. So- you mentioned that Neapolitan style is a term that has gotten confused here because a lot of people would use it to describe Roberta's pizza and Franny's pizza and uh, who Polly G's and you know.
1: I've given up fighting that battle. I mean, I think <laughs> that um, the fact of the matter is that we've they, adopted the word. We've adopted the word for this newfangled kind of Naples pizza. It all started out with that place up on Twenty First Street. I forget the name.
0: Motorina? No. No, no, no. no this no, is way no. before
1: that. There was about. 10, 12 years ago, there was a place that first started serving the pies of Naples and advertising as such, and they brought in the Association of Naples Pizza Makers, which had been hastily formed oh. to certify American pies, uh, Levray, something or other. Okay. And um, that was the first place that they started making the Naples style pies, and then Because Naples was there, I mean, our original pies, we used to call them Sicilian and Neapolitan. The Neapolitan were the big thin crust pies, but now Neapolitan, I've given up, is applied to Naples style, which means tiny and expensive.
0: Uh-huh. So you also mentioned that the coal uh, ovens were the original. Uh, that That is how the original New
1: York pizza was formed. That's right. And that's one of the things that controlled what the pizza was like. I mean, mm-hmm. you go back to the wood oven places of Naples, and they burn around 700 degrees. And so uh, their pies could afford to be a little bit puffier, mm-hmm. a little bit thicker, have perhaps a better strew of ingredients on them. Um, and also, they didn't give a damn if it was damp. I mean, our pies had to be kind of portable, mm-hmm. uh, starting in the nineteen fifties. So, um, so those early pies, because they were done in a coal oven, which is what uh, was the fuel used in all of the local bakeries on the Lower East Side. Um, They had to be really thin, and they couldn't have a lot of ingredients on top of them, or otherwise, the outside would burn and the inside would remain uncooked. Mm -hmm. So they developed a style of these thin crust, very thin crust pies, and that's what still characterizes the best american pizza
0: right right um and just to be sure like that began with oh,
1: seeing pizzas going by the window uh-huh. here just, i know
0: a very apt place for this conversation me. but nowadays people can't use um coal burning like you can't open a restaurant with coal no
1: but That's some of our, our oldest pizza parlors including patsy's and john's and lombardi's uh still, still have, have their coal oven and it's, grandfather. it's one of the weirdest thing on Bleecker street to be walking in the morning past John's and to see them with the coal scuttle, you know, dumping coal down (laughs) this chute. And it's like, is this 1920?
0: (laughs) But meanwhile, people are opening wood-burning ovens because that's still acceptable by law.
1: Well, and oddly enough, it was kind of the the new barbecues that made Mm. wood-burning ovens viable. I mean, it used to be that people would say, oh, you can never use a wood-burning oven. You could never do real barbecue because the smell of the smoke is going to drive the neighbors crazy. You know, but there actually were things called scrubbers that would take the smoke out of the exhaust air, mm-hmm. and that's what they basically use. They have ways of kind of filtering out a lot of the smoky smell. So if you walk by some wood-burning Neapolitan pizza place, you know you don't smell smoke.
0: I can see a joint barbecue and pizza place <laughs> opening up. That would be a great business. Wow,
1: from your from your lips to Buddha's ears.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um. So reading through this, I'm tempted to ask you, like, what is the best, you know, barbecue? What is the best pizza? Did you write this in, like, a sort of response to, uh, you must get these questions all the time. Uh Um, Did you want to kind of, like, flesh this out more and kind of see the whole scope? Or, like, what inspired you to to take on these topics and the foods and and kind of, I don't know. The, was it just to set the story right because there's so much misunderstanding? Or did you want to declare like your favorites?
1: Or Well, I really almost started out to write a memoir of my experience in food. That's and one
0: of my favorite parts the, is when you have the memoir stuff. Yeah. The,
1: the topic got kind of mutated so that the focus <laughs> was on the dishes that defined the city. But I managed to slip in some personal details. And I've spent my entire career avoiding revealing things about myself. So I thought if I put them in a book, maybe someone would buy it. Uh, And that's not necessarily proven to be the case. But still, uh, it was fun having that particular mix of tourist guide, guide to foods, historical explanation, and me and my experiences. I mean, I go back to my childhood in the boxed Pizzas that me and my brothers used to make I
0: didn't know about that. they came with like the sauce and the cheese and yeah, then the all dough. separate That's and really uh and of course
1: the cheese was something called parmesan mm, you know, I remember we use the name now to refer to you know Parmesan or Reggiano, but this was parmesan. really this kind of parmesan, yeah Parme- <laughs> yeah, it was not parmesan, it was parmesan <laughs> and um and it was like this dry kind of yellowish. Salt, yeah. It was all salt, yeah. And, and of course, that was the only cheese. They can't put fresh cheese in this oh, boxed pizza. Weird. You know, but they had, like, a yeasty dough that you had to mix up. They had a sauce that had, like, oregano and a lot of sugar in it. And they had this, like, crazy cheese that you would just sprinkle across the top and it would kind of make a little raft on top.
0: And you wrote... We loved it. Oh (laughs) Oh, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, You also write that New York uh, people who came came to New York from outside New York tend to be the most passionate and uh, rapid
1: foodies, like yourself.
0: Yeah. Well, actually, I was born in
1: uh, yeah. You grew up in Jersey. Jersey. yeah. Yeah.
0: But um, yeah. Um, what what is that to it? I mean, you grew up um with uh in the Midwest. Um, less ethnic foods out there
1: almost nothing i grew up in a non restaurant culture pretty much right. i mean the number of restaurants that there are today compared to the number of restaurants there were when i was a kid i mean just the sheer number of restaurants the sheer opportunity to to buy food in a restaurant i mean i would i swear when i was a kid a, i would think no more than 1% of typical per capita restaurant meals were eaten I in know. a restaurant per capita meals were eaten in a restaurant Uh, It was something for a special occasion or something for travelers, but not something where you would go out to have a good time and make that the center of your entertainment. I mean, this age of foodism we're in has altered everything. And... um so, yeah, when I was a kid, man, the best you could do in a restaurant was maybe a hamburger and french fries, which we, of course, loved. Mm-hmm. Or Chinese food was another of the options. Or for people that wanted to spend a little money, there were French, kind of fake, fakey French restaurants.
0: Ooh, yeah. with a little marsala chicken or something.
1: Well, yeah, and oh, one of their funny. signature dishes was this kind of mayonnaise potato salad, which was kind of adopted all across the Midwest.
0: Come de la terre de la
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. We, I want to know when you decided or thought you are going to be a food critic, but we're going to cut to a little commercial interlude and we'll be right back, Chad Moore. That, that was a cliffhanger.
1: Yeah, nice. <laughs>
0: You are listening to Knife Show. This is Eat Your Words on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com.
1: This is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
0: Hey, we're back chatting more with Robert Sietzema about his new book, D- New York in a Dozen Dishes. Um, but just to, sorry, um, just to get <laughs> Had to back. get the
1: microphone around here.
0: <laughs> so uh, when did you decide you were going to be a food craker? Cra-
1: yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yes. Um, I didn't decide. It picked me. Uh, mm-hmm. It Back then, at least, when I started, which is maybe 25 years ago,
0: You started Um, a zine at first. I
1: started a zine, and I started the zine because my parents had bought my daughter a computer, a PC. They were very Uh computer-forward. And uh, it's hard to believe the pre-computer age (laughs) or the pre-cell phone age, but these are things that have been introduced to the general population only recently, really. Uh So 25 years ago, it was weird to have... A computer yeah. in a house. You know, a computer was something that was, at that time, being adopted into workplaces. Mm-hmm. And I made my living as a, a secretary, a temporary secretary, who would go, in common with my other friends in the East Village, uh, you know, we could kind of type, and we would go into these places where they had these computers, and all of their old-fashioned secretaries were, like, afraid of them. Ah. And, they, and they just refused to use them. Um, And so we would go in there and get like as much as $20 an hour, you know, and we'd have to think on our feet because there were like five or six different kinds of word processing programs and all of them had different F key, uh, Uh you know, commands. But usually you could get a little chart, Mm -hmm. you know, and you would like learn how to do it. And all you really had to do was to type a letter and then send it to the printer. So and how hard could that be? You could always ask somebody there that already knew. So but we misrepresented ourselves in that way. And my... Parents, forward-looking as they were, sent, you know, my five-year-old daughter a computer. Oh, wow. And, um, and we're going like, what, what do we do with this? I mean, at that time, you could play a few games that you loaded up on floppy disks. There was no hard drive. So, uh, and, you know, we started, I started making this fanzine where I would, like, type several pages uh, four times a year called Down the Hatch. And it would basically—it uh, was like for my other musician friends to tell them I was in a rock band at that time, and it was
0: to—it
1: was to give them uh, an idea of where to eat, you know, mm-hmm. between sound check and performance when you had some time and not much money. So I mean, it started out being. I, as I started out being an advocate of cheap ethnic eats all around the city.
0: And was that because that was what you could afford, you know, mostly? Well, or? I
1: was interested because of my own kind of bland food background. I okay. mean, I'd spent my entire youth eating meatloaf and instant mashed potatoes. So things that assertively had no seasoning at all. So when I got here and had my first Szechuan meal, mm-hmm. you know, and ate my first chivapi, when I, you know, when I ate, things for the first time, it just blew my mind and it was like, well, why don't I eat like cool stuff all the time?
0: But meanwhile, in food writing, people who were food critics were writing about places like Per Se and... uh... Oh yeah,
1: as a matter of fact, there. I mean, one of the reasons that I started the fanzine was that I was pissed off that um, 99% of the verbiage found in newspapers and magazines uh, were just about the top 1% of the restaurants. Yeah. Very, very expensive, which had not been true in an earlier age. In the 60s, people like Craig Claiborne, because there were so many fewer restaurants, they would write you know, about okay. a broad range okay. of places and kind of treat them all democratically. But by the, by the 80s, 80s you know, the Brian Miller uh, era, you know, mm-hmm. it was an elitist occupation, which right. is how I so easily got the job at The Voice. They realized, oh, my God, this guy is covering places that our readers might actually eat at.
0: What, um, how do you think the, the world of food writing or food criticism has uh, changed over the years? So we went from more democratic to 1% to ethnic, thanks to you. Um, to Is it just more broad and, and everywhere? Or do you think there's a, it's leaning towards any certain, uh, uh, I don't know, themes?
1: Well, I would say, like the restaurant industry itself, uh, it's broadened so that there's hundreds more people call, you know hun- hundred several hundred percent more people calling themselves food writers <laughs> as a matter of fact i, I know yelpers
0: and in a way it's yeah. like
1: destroyed the market for for writing Sorry, about food you know you work for the huff post and you don't get paid anything probably no expenses either yeah. and uh, it it's It's turned into a vast landscape of writing. So who you pay attention to, you know, is up to you. But are you finding the best stuff? You know, I mean, we have so much food writing. It's probably sometimes it seems like 50 percent of all the writing is about food. And all these universities have, you know, instituted food writing programs and food writing degrees. And uh, it's just astonishing.
0: It is astonishing. Do you think that there is still a future for the paid, expensed Food critic?
1: Well, you, when all these when people I got are writing the, for free? When I got the job, uh, I got it from a, a kind of a fluke. At Village it, Voice? Yeah, and it was, if they had advertised a job nobody would want it. Oh. I know this is hard to believe. The age of foodism has changed yeah. all of our attitudes about food. So it's not how we think food is, you know, is the best thing in the world and the be-all and end-all of all existence. But the fact of the matter is that could change. It's a bubble. Mm. Someday that may deflate. And we might be much happier as food writers if we weren't in such a crowded field of oh. so many people that looked at everything so idealistically. Uh, meanwhile, the food writing Coterie has become kind of corrupt in a way. I mean, how many reviews online are written from free comped meals where that's never divulged? And, I mean, that's the worst thing in the world because, you know, it's slimy and duplicitous.
0: Can we talk about a a fallen colleague of ours, uh, Mr. Ozersky, who tragically passed away well before his time. But you had some very public disputes with him on that exact matter of um comped meals um... it, it's true
1: i don't like to speak bad of I'm the sorry. I mean, he, he i'm was, sorry no that's fine he <laughs> was um, he was a, an important a seminal figure uh, he was the the meat lover the he, he had, was. you know it was a he was. it was a character that he created for himself
0: mr cutlets
1: yeah he had been kind of an academic a failed academic writer and he decided to become this kind of like anti-vegetarian meat hungry you know he man and I think he did a great job. One of the things that distinguished him was amazing writing abilities. Mm-hmm. So, but but he had an elastic sense of uh, of ethics that sometimes held him in bad stead. And that's how I came head to head with him at one point. Although I've certainly forgiven him, and I hope he forgave me. But uh, yeah, I wrote a piece in the in the Voice about you know a, a piece that he'd written in uh, in the Time Magazine online site.
0: So you're now the feature, uh, cri- or the food critic at Eater,
1: one no. of one of three altogether. Okay. Uh, uh, Ryan Sutton and Bill Addison are uh, the other two. Bill Addison covers the national scene and goes from city to city like a like a Bedouin, and uh, and Ryan covers <laughs> mainly the higher end places in New York. Okay. As I get anything else.
0: Yeah, so tell me a little bit about how that process, is it still kind of similar to how you've been conducting your reviews of restaurants for the last 20 years? Do you go there twice, or tell me a little bit how you do that.
1: Um, It's pretty consistent, although I only publish a review, a full review, which involves three visits every other week. Uh, I also do these things which I would have deplored 10 years ago, but which I think are necessary at this point, called first looks. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, I, yeah. Um, a while ago, there was a piece that um, that kind of reviled this sensibility of like visiting a place right bef- before it could ever get off the off the ground, before it could get steady on its feet. You know, Indeed. like going in in the first few days. On the other hand, that's what the public wants.
0: They want to just um, check it out. Really, yeah.
1: The half life of a restaurant has gotten shorter and shorter. My oh, God, if you true. wait like three months or even six months to review a restaurant. It's not going to be there anymore, mm. you know, mm. and there's pop-ups, too. I mean, there's all sorts of kind of middle categories. Trucks. And, um, and what I do when I write the first looks is I try to be forgiving of, and I talk more about the good things, and, but I mainly just give facts about the restaurant, things that okay. people want to know. Is it BYOB? Uh, is it a sunny room? Do they serve brunch? Do they have a, a wine program that's reasonably priced? Mm-hmm. Is the food really, really good, or is it too fussy? Or, you know, or, are there some good dishes and some bad dishes? Or what should you order when you get there for the first time or whatever? Mm. So uh, those so, seem, those often do better than the full, full-length reviews.
0: Well, people want to see something before, I guess, they invest the money to go dine there. Well, that's so. what, we're,
1: we're now a herd of foodies who go from recently opened restaurant to recently opened restaurant and which is a shame for sustainability because restaurants the half life of a restaurant has shrunk probably from five to ten years down to you know five to ten months in some cases so it's a bubble thing yeah and with the real estate pressures too yeah so yeah we're gonna see something maybe 10 years from now that's completely different than what's going on now in new york Uh, i i think so i mean i don't think how long can the foodism bubble last
0: all right. Well, what's your favorite neighborhood right now for checking out food? I well, I you're... would
1: say Bushwick. Yeah? Bushwick is fantastic. I mean, we have more taquerias here than any other similar size area in the city, wow. including just astonishing taquerias. We have some really kind of casual, fun, hipster restaurants that are um, like, I like that Montana's Trailhouse. if you've mm-hmm. ever been there, that has kind of like mildly creative food and strong drinks, which is what m- much of the public wants. Now, I, I worry that too many uh, restaurants are now mainly alcohol-oriented, which is what the whole short-dish movement was about, small just having small plates. Ones, yeah. yeah, so you can go to a restaurant and have three cocktails and then eat a couple of little plates of food and feel like you've eaten your dinner when you really have drunk it. Hmm, hmm.
0: Well, that's That's exciting for Bushwick. Um, I, f- I feel like I should ask you like one last question to sure. like, I don't know, sum up what what you already predicted. You know, some things happening, changing landscapes. I guess this question is pretty generic, but you know, you've been a food writer. Hopefully, you'll write more about personal memoir stuff. I just wonder, what other food writers do you look up
1: to? Oh my God, will you, Kathy Irway? <laughs> Uh, other than that, you know, I I, I read just about everybody. Yeah? Um, yeah, I, I, sh- I shouldn't mention any particular names, but uh, looking back in the past, I like Seymour Britschke and A.J. Liebling mm-hmm. and Joseph Mitchell and Calvin Trillin and Ruth Reichel and... Uh, Tr-
0: the pioneers, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: All right, so I, I wanted to ask that because whenever I ask folks who are like aspiring food critics and they're, you know, Kind of raising their hands in conferences and so forth, um, uh, most of them will say, when asked the question, who is your favorite food writer, influence, influential, whatever, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. They say Robert Sietzema. Oh, so,
1: yeah. Thank you.
0: Yay. Yeah. Well, um, I hope everyone gets their hands on this wonderful book. Um, it's a fun read. But it's also very educational, and I can't wait to try um, scrambled brains pretty soon. Hopefully um, my brains won't scramble after eating them. Um, Thanks so much, Kathy. Thanks so much, Robert. Thanks, everyone, at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words.